Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're back in the studio. We've got a special guest with us. This is the last of our episode with the scientific community on the COVID-19 virus. And today we are on the phone from a distance with Dr. Mark Lewis, who is the director of GI cancer at Intermountain in Salt Lake City, Utah. Mark, thank you for joining us. Oh, Dino, it's my pleasure to speak to you and your audience. Well, we appreciate you taking time. Um, before we begin kind of talking about some of the questions I have for you, Mark, um, for our audience who are listening, this is a super fluid situation that we're dealing with here. Uh, we're recording this on the 17th, which happens to be St. Patrick's Day. So happy St. Patrick's Day, a couple days late. This will air a couple days after. But so um, what we're talking about here is based on what we know today as of March 17th. So for our first question for Dr. Lewis, what should our pancreatic cancer community. And, and when we, in this podcast, we're going to talk about that community in particular, the families and the patients that are battling pancreatic cancer. What are some of the things that they should not do right now at this moment? Right. And, you know, you know, I have the utmost um, compassion for your community. A large portion of my medical practice is treating patients with both pancreatic adenocarcinoma and pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. So again, I have the utmost sympathy for um, what people are facing at the moment. I see uh, the fear uh, in people's eyes and I hear it in their voices when I talk to them uh, on the phone. So actually, I think the, the first piece of advice, and I know this sounds disingenuous, is not to panic um, and to engage with their existing um, healthcare uh, providers. Now, just today, as you said, we're recording this on March 17th. Just today, the government made it far less restrictive in terms of privacy and the types of contact the doctors can have with their patients. Um, so, you know, for years, um, you know, confidentiality has been sacrosanct, and that's important. Um, but it's also, frankly, created some barriers to, say, uh, calling patients on the phone. Uh, or using some of the newer video technologies for visits. So if you have a concern, my first piece of advice is reach out to your doctor and specifically your oncologist uh, for counsel. Now, a lot of the offices, understandably, will be overwhelmed with calls, and there may be a bit of a triage system there. Um, but remember, you know, we were your doctors before. We are your doctors now. And frankly, your oncologist might know better than uh, anyone, uh, how to assess your personal risk um, in terms of your immune system and vulnerabilities thereof as we face coronavirus together. Yeah, that's it's super powerful. I mean, I think for the audience listening at home, and we've got a pretty vast audience, but you know, especially for those families impacted that are currently in treatment, and, and I know this does, I know we opened it saying this is about pancreatic cancer, but you know, cancer as a whole, any pancreatic or any yeah. cancer patients as well, I think that the biggest key that you just said is just don't panic. And I think this is so fluid. I mean, um, I've been talking to a couple friends that are therapists, you know, and, and there's, you know, a lot of stress in the world right now, clearly with what's going on. And they were talking about how, you know, they're, they're releasing some guidelines to do the teletherapy where you know people yes. can do things via the computer or Skype or Zoom, you know any of these services that are available to do that via the phone or the computer versus actually physically being 
close to someone and, and adhering with these social distancing um, that everyone is talking about. With regards to engaging with providers, if I know you've mentioned like if there's a concern with care, but should patients be calling ahead of time? And I know this, again, this is a super fluid situation, but so like, let's say if someone's not due back for like a week or two, should they yeah. be communicating regularly if there's no changes or if there is something that's you know, dramatically changing in their daily health, or I know sometimes that can, that can change with cancer patients pretty quickly, but like, you know, post-treatment that maybe for a day, a couple of days after, you know, they're not feeling great, but then, you know, that fifth day, they feel really good. Right. No. So we talked earlier about the COVID-19 situation being fluid. Absolutely. The care uh, and uh, well-being of a cancer patient can change extremely rapidly too. Um, I would say it's a little bit of a two-way street, um, not to um, beg for sympathy for doctors and our staff, but you know we are in a situation where if we're not already overwhelmed, we will be very, very soon. Yeah. Um, however, it is fine, I think, for patients and their families to be a little proactive in how they contact us. And, and again, the same things that concerned you before should still concern you now, meaning the um, Side effects from treatment, um, certainly a fever right now. Uh, you should definitely contact uh, your doctor. Now, how we triage that these days might be a little bit different. Uh, there might be some different questions um, concerning coronavirus than what we would ask to say triage a neutropenic fever. But regardless, I do think it's appropriate for people to think ahead. Um, the telehealth um, capability that you mentioned earlier has really been extremely rewarding in my own practice, and I think maybe both physicians and patients um, underrate just how fulfilling that experience can be. Um, I will admit it's not quite the same as being in the room with someone. You obviously miss out some of the physical examination, and you know, just a physical uh, presence can be very, very powerful. However, in in this time, it might actually be the the best option. Um, you know, if you're not needing to come in for an actual infusion. Um, it can certainly be used, I think, as a, a means of communication. Here at Intermountain, um, as you said, you know, you know, we're based in Salt Lake City, but we actually cover the entire state of Utah and beyond. And so for years now, I've been doing telehealth to um, some outlying areas uh, that maybe are less urban. You know, we mm -hmm. deal with a lot of rural frontier. And so I, I've actually had practice, and I'm not, I'm not gloating, I'm, I'm actually promoting um, this model I've had practice using telehealth, and it is wonderful. Um, and I can do almost everything via telehealth visit that I could do in person with, with obvious uh, exceptions. Um, so I think that's a, that's a technology that we're going to see rapidly adopted. And again, today, the government really took off um, the restrictions that were sort of handcuffing providers previously. I think we're going to see a dramatic spike in telehealth. And if there's any silver lining to this crisis, um, I think it is going to reshape the way we do healthcare in the future. Of course, at this point, we just have to get through uh, the pandemic. Um, I'll also say, from an oncologist's perspective, this has changed a little bit of the calculus around adjuvant chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. So, again, I know you have a sophisticated audience. You know, when you go through pancreatic cancer, uh, if you've had a resectable uh, uh, or operable pancreatic cancer and it's taken out of you, uh, you know, it's then almost universal. Uh, that we would recommend at least consideration of chemotherapy in the aftermath. Um, again, pancreatic cancer remains an extreme threat, but it, it actually becomes a balancing act between the 
uh, long-term benefits of chemotherapy and the short-term risks when it comes to COVID-19. So again, expect that discussion to evolve very, very rapidly and really be a, a nuanced uh, conversation to have with your oncologist. So this this brings me to another question here, and, and I had this written down, and I know this has been talked about, the chemo breaks. You know, and sometimes patients, whether they're changing regimens or if they just come to a point in their treatment that they need a chemo break. So do you think with the rapid fluidity of the situation with the COVID-19 virus that the discussion of that chemo break probably is now more in people's minds, both from the clinical standpoint and across the board. I, well, I should say from the clinical standpoint across the board, across the country, because you know patients are at risk potentially if they come in or if they have naturally weakened immune systems, um, you know, to battle anything that whether it's the flu or COVID nineteen, they're 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 right. at risk. Right, and frankly, I'm glad you mentioned influenza. I mean, this is a little bit of our risk analysis every winter, um, but I think this is just. Um, such such a uh, more worrisome threat based on its prevalence, based on the fact that we don't have any immunity or yet um, a very effective vaccine against it. So I think it's just, it's kind of the flu times 10, if you will. Yeah. Obviously, that number is not exact. Um, so yes, I think on the doctor's side, what I think about Dino is I have a sort of set of numbers in my head, uh, which are the percentage risk of serious immunosuppression after each chemo regimen. So again, your audience knows this, but chemo is just an umbrella term. Just like when we say antibiotics, you know, there's penicillin, there's vancomycin, et cetera. With chemo, not all chemotherapy is terribly devastating to the immune system. Um, as a general rule, the more drugs you add in, uh, the more suppressed you get. And so probably the most um, heavy, if that's the right word, triplet in pancreatic cancer is fulfirinox. That's mm -hmm. three active uh, chemo drugs together. Um, and that certainly can, depending on the dosing and the scheduling, have a profound uh, dip um, in the patient's immune system. And the other thing to remember, Dino, is you know, oftentimes I'm seeing my patients, say, two weeks apart. So there's, there's method in our, in our timing where the, the two-week interval is actually designed to allow recovery of the immune system for the next treatment. Mm -hmm. But and I'm not trying to scare anyone here. It's important to recognize there is a nadir between those, those, those treatments. And so for most of my pancreatic cancer patients, you know, let's say I, I see them this week and I give them chemotherapy. I tell them to come back in two weeks. The actual dip in their immunity probably happens next week. It happens Correct. in that intervening week. Um, and so again, it's difficult for people to, um, take any more precautions than they already are. Um, you know, all the things that we've heard about uh, social distancing are true. Um, I, I would also point out just today, in fact, again, March 17th in the New England Journal of Medicine, there was an analysis suggesting that the coronavirus can persist on surfaces for days. Mm -hmm. um, and I can certainly provide you with that link for your audience. But my, my point is, you know, we really have to be fastidious about um, cleaning our hands, yeah. uh, but also the, the things that we touch. This is the first major pandemic, I think, in the uh, smartphone era. I know we've had SARS and MERS, but um, again, this is, a, this is a global problem, and we're all walking around, or many of us, with devices uh, that we interact with constantly, and those really have to be cleaned too. So, so to back way up, um, yes, uh, there's a new um, decision-making that goes into the risks of chemotherapy in relationship to this 
virus. Um, if you are already contemplating a chemo break, this probably makes you think even more about doing that. Um, but on the other hand, um, as we said at the beginning, you know, pancreatic cancer is not elective. If you're dealing with a very aggressive uh, metastatic cancer, for instance, uh, heaven forbid, um, that the risk of uh, proceeding with chemotherapy might actually be worth it. Um, and so, again, the only way you can do this very nuanced risk-benefit analysis is with your oncologist. You really need to lean on that existing therapeutic alliance. Well, I think you just said something that's really powerful, though, for our entire audience listening at home. Like, these decisions should be made with your oncologist. And we never advocate that anything that we say here on the podcast, whether it's scientific or if it's one of our survivors that we talk to that has taken something that that is written in the medical journals and is is the law of how things should be done. But I think the important narrative here is to have these conversations. Don't be scared to ask your oncologist or your medical professional about these kinds of things, right? Because I think this is right. this is the day and age where we live in. And I, I think we're, I'll go back. I mean, I think this is, if we take even go back a couple months, I mean, these, these are things, you know, the things that we are all telling people to do other than social distance, what for some people might actually be a good thing. That's, that's a joke. Uh, but right. you know, <laughs> I, I think the washing of the hands, I mean, for how long did, you know, I mean, it's crazy to think like here we are in 2020, that we have to tell people how to wash hands properly. And I, I will admit, yes. and I'm not, I'm not trying to be, um, you know, mean here. I, I watched the video of Dr. Oz on the today show and how the proper way of washing hands was. And I was like dumbfounded that I didn't wash my hands properly and also not touching anything after washing your hands, like the faucet or the door, you know, because you're right. just recontaminating your hands. And I was like, oh my God, like I'm 45 years old and I clearly have never learned how to wash my hands properly. But, you know, so I, I think that's, it's really important, you know, for our audience at home to hear this because I, I think having those conversations and knowing these things is, is critical. Well, it's, and it's funny, I think um, there's obviously been a lot of memes circulating about the hand washing and, you know, everything I need to know I learned in kindergarten, right? But yeah. um, it's really true. As simple as it is, um, that might be the single best thing that anyone listening to this can do um, because – and it's been explained very scientifically online, but actually the soap breaks down the um, sort of protective layer around the virus. Um, so it's literally virolytic. Um, I know I've seen people you know, stockpiling Purell and yeah. we won't even get into toilet paper, but, yeah, yeah. but the, the soap, soap is absolutely key. And then again, remember – you're not just protecting yourself, you're protecting everyone else. And I think this is truly um, a time where we need to think about our, our fellow person. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned earlier that both patients and their families are listening to this. I don't think that, um, I, I don't want patients and their families to um, necessarily be quarantined away from one another yet. Again, I think we're going to learn very quickly um, how to uh, best test for this virus. Right now, I think what's most troubling is A, there's a dearth of test kits in the U.S. Again, we're talking on March 17th. And B, uh, we know from other countries' experience, particularly Italy, uh, that you can look completely fine, be totally asymptomatic, and still be a carrier. Um, so I, think, I actually think we all have an ethical responsibility to one another, uh, but particularly to protect um, the most vulnerable among us. Um, the, the Chinese experience showed us that patients with cancer, and again, I'm not trying to scare anyone, were more susceptible to serious effects from the virus. Uh, that was an article published in The Lancet last month. Uh, interestingly, 
you know, sort of not critics of the article, but those people responding to it have pointed out that that may have been somewhat skewed by age. And again, mm-hmm. that's not reassuring to um, some of your uh, audience demographic either, but uh, the median age of the patients with cancer that they were reporting, I believe, was in the mid-60s, uh, which actually trends exactly with the median age of um, patients in my clinic is, is right around 68. Um, however, you know, young people, younger people um, are also potentially vulnerable. And I think in Italy, they're actually kind of seeing a second wave of infections in uh, younger Italians. And it's hard to know exactly why that's happening. We don't know if it's because they were less concerned mm-hmm. um, in not taking the same measures or if this is a kind of change in the viral pattern. I guess that the main message is anybody could carry it, but people will be variably um, affected by it. And my wife, for instance, is a pediatrician. Um, a small blessing in all of this is that children seem to be relatively unaffected. Um, however, uh, children may also be perfect vectors for transmitting it to, you know, older adults. Yeah. Um, and so this is just this is an uncertain time. And we really owe it all, like you were saying uh, earlier, to ourselves to you know, practice good behavior, um, wash our hands, disinfect our surfaces like our phones, you know, uh, very conscientiously, practice social distancing. Um, and again, on my side, uh, you know, the new term is medical distancing. So if I look at my schedule and I see people who I think I could do you know, 90 plus percent of my job over the phone or through a, a Skype type platform, then I'm going to do that. So it really is a two-way street right now. It's powerful stuff. I, I, you know, the medical distancing thing is really fascinating to me. And I, I think, you know, we have a model as we were talking before we started to record of, you know, this in group engagement, right? And I, I feel, you know, in, in any time there's tragic events that happen or, you know, um, challenging times, you know, that you really kind of have to think outside the box. And, and maybe the, the silver lining in all of this is that, you know, the medical profession and, and the folks in that field find ways to better service the needs of the patient population, right? I think yes, this is going to be something that's going to be tested. You know, I mean, the whole medical professional is being tested and it is not going to be tested. It is being tested right now on almost a critical mass. And there's going to be some amazing things that are learned through this on how to avoid these things, hopefully in the future, or clearly how to be better suited for them when the next one hits and also how to become better at what we all do. And, and then that I think can go for many profession because clearly everyone is trying to think outside the box and technology is a great thing, right? When used in the, in a, yeah. in, a in the right way, you know, to have a device, whether it's a phone or a laptop to be able to communicate people. And, you know, we're talking about these, these are life-saving things. Um, not yeah. in the sense that someone's having a heart attack or someone's having critical care needs, but you know, in the big picture, to to have someone you know social distance themselves right now. If we talk about what's going on right now, and being able to talk to their medical professional to be reassured, to know that there's not an issue, and to stay home to be safe, that's a game changer. It's amazing. It's, it's an amazing, yeah, it's an amazing time. And you, I think you know, one analogy that's been made to this pandemic is the influenza outbreak in 1918. I was actually just talking to my wife last night about how much. Yes, we're more interconnected these days in terms of global travel, but we also have, you know, the remarkable ability to you know, stay in touch with one another, whether it's our next door neighbor or someone around the world. Um, I mean, it's just amazing. Um, yeah. And so I think this is a time where, you know, we can get over a little bit of the social isolation by you know, tapping into our um, virtual networks. I'll say that um, 
online, I have found the response to this pandemic to be about 99% positive. Um, as always, you'll find uh, trolls, yeah. uh, and there's a fair amount of misinformation uh, going around too. However, um, for the most part, I've been very um, heartened and encouraged, and I want your audience to know too that doctors are using uh, these platforms to communicate with one another like we've internationally learned from our uh, colleagues um, in China and Italy and elsewhere. Um, you know, my first sense, actually, that things were uh, changing in Italy came from a uh, group, a private chat group I'm on, online with, and I realized the Italian doctors there were really struggling to keep up with the needs for ventilators. And so um, it really is in, it's an amazing time to be alive, and hopefully we can marshal uh, all of our uh, digital resources to really make an impact in real life. I couldn't agree with you more. I got two questions for you. Sure. We're talking about patients that are, um, you know, going through treatment, you know, whether they've had surgery or they haven't had surgery, um, regardless of what type of chemo treatment they're on. But what about the folks? And, and as we, we know, this is going to happen, um, unfortunately, during this time of chaos that are newly diagnosed or asymptomatic. Yeah. What could we share with those folks? Because I, I think that's another part of the population. I mean, we've focused a couple of these podcasts now on, you know, what people should know that are in care and, and, you know, people are talking about, well, yeah, this immune suppressed, but I mean, someone who's battling cancer that may not know it is probably going to have not the best of immunity, right? Because there's, even though they're not on chemo, they're still battling this internal craziness with cancer and, you know, whatever else. So what could we tell for that population? Yeah. So, you know, as you well understand, the initial um, diagnosis and treatment of pancreatic cancer is inherently multidisciplinary, yeah. um, almost always involves a surgeon and a medical oncologist and then possibly a radiation oncologist too. So to answer your question, I was actually at a conference this morning um, where our um, head pancreatic surgeon here, who had as it happens, is also leading um, our biggest hospital's effort against coronavirus, um, said he does not consider uh, pancreatic cancer surgery something that is elective or to be postponed even in spite of COVID-19. Now, again, that could change uh, soon, yeah. um, but it, it, we're still weighing um, threats. And I think what's concerning, as you said, you know, is if you sort of leave a cancer completely unattended, um, what does that do to someone's overall health? And is there some yeah. sort of measurable or immeasurable diversion of their uh, sort of finite resources, if you will, um, to fend off the cancer or try to keep it at bay uh, while also being concerned about um, this virus? And it, it's it's tricky. The, the final piece of the puzzle is, again, as you're getting newly diagnosed, you might be um, in a lot of healthcare facilities. Yeah. And right now we are trying to uh, minimize what we would call non-essential visits. And I know that sounds dismissive because every visit matters. Um, but again, I want people to know the medical distancing part of this means that we're trying to make our clinics and hospitals safer for the people who absolutely have to be there. And one of the things we've decided to do at Intermountain is continue you know, imaging and lab work and infusions and surgeries for our cancer patients because we know that cancer is a very, very serious illness and we can't just leave it be uh, for the duration of this pandemic, however long that's going to be. Yeah. And I, I think that's kind of been from what I've seen the consensus and from talking to 
multiple oncologists across the country that, you know, this, this still is, um, you know, I think th there's been maybe for the public, you know, again, on March 17th, there's been a lot of stuff in the media about things that are elective, right? Elective surgery right. is no longer being yeah. even an option. Right. And those things can be, you know, you're, you know and I mean? I think there's, there's someone who's in a high risk group to have like, you know, elective testing, you know, if you're at high risk, I think you still have to have maybe that conversation with your physician, you know, because if you have, you know, someone who has pancreatitis and is going for like a three month yes. scan, you know, that that's not necessarily elective. That's probably, you know, something that you probably don't want to miss. You know, again and again, you know, I think what we're coming back to is the message that as scary as all this is, you don't have to make these decisions in a vacuum. And Correct. Again, just realize that your doctors right now are probably very stressed, <laughs> but um, it's still our job to serve you. Yeah. You know, we, we don't just abdicate responsibility because of this pandemic. So, if you are having questions, and I think especially in the early, but well, frankly, any stage of treatment for pancreatic cancer, I would strongly encourage you to use whatever um, connections you already have. Um, I don't think you have to reinvent the wheel here. And, I, and frankly, again, those physicians are best poised to advise you. Like I can tell you. Um, obviously, wouldn't name names, but you know, I'm thinking of all my patients in my panel right now, and there are some where I think a break in treatment will be entirely appropriate, and there's others in whom I actually think that that would be very risky to them yeah. to stop chemo. So it's just, it really is uh, a decision that has to be made on a case by case basis, but again, not a decision that a patient should make or, or feel like they have to make alone. Powerful. I, you know, again, like we said before, you got to communicate these things, but these are the questions you should be asking. And for those that people that feel that they, uh, they are having serious issues or asymptomatic of the disease, you know, this is kind of the frustration or asymptomatic of the disease. I should finish here, you know, go, go get checked up and, you know, whether it's via tele, uh, or, you know, via phone call just to kind of make sure that, uh, you can go there and see someone, you know, it's, it's yeah. really critical. And, and, you know, this is maybe, I was going to say my frustration that we don't have an early detection test, right? Like if we had a test, you know, maybe we wouldn't be having this type of conversation on the newly diagnosed right. because we would know, right. And people wouldn't, right. wouldn't have to, to worry about that. My last question for you, and, and this is a, as a clinician and as, you know, uh, what you've seen, um, and, I think, you know, anytime someone is battling cancer and, you know, in our case, you know, pancreatic cancer, we always, you know, friends and families always want to rally. This is kind of a weird time, you know, clearly it's a fluid situation. What do you think right now, what, what would we say? And, and maybe there's people listening that have someone that they know that's battling pancreatic cancer. You know, everyone wants to help or be helpful, but do you think right now is kind of the, the time to just take a step back and maybe just maybe FaceTime those friends or just call? Yeah, them? no, that's... That's actually a perfect, I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah, I, I don't want uh, cancer patients in particular to feel like they are you know, sequestered from the rest of society. You know, I think there's a balancing act here between um, social distancing and then you know, isolation yeah. is psychologically harmful. Yeah. I love your idea about, about FaceTiming. I yeah. just think I would use all the, all the um, indirect methods to remind someone that you're still thinking about them and communicating with them. Um, it's actually been uh, a tough policy for us to enact here, Dino, is that we've really limited, because we've had to, the number of visitors. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have some very difficult uh, conversations sometimes with my patients. I think my record for family members in attendance is roughly three dozen. Um, oh, <laughs> and that, we, had to, we had to move into a, a very large conference room uh, for that. But you know, that's not going to happen right now. Uh, it's just a... Um, 
an unsafe number of people to gather together unless you actually have to. Um, I think yesterday, actually, the president recommended that we not gather in groups of more than 10. Um, and um, frankly, I, I support that. Um, it's not a hard and fast rule, but it's a sensible rule for the yeah. moment to follow. And so, yes, to answer your question, uh, patients with cancer should not be left alone during this time. But on the other hand, uh, social distancing might really help them uh, by some estimates, fivefold more than the average person in terms of not uh, contracting this virus. It's powerful stuff. I check in on my mom every day, by the way. She, I, hopefully oh, she's listening. Great. She's a breast cancer survivor. So I've told her we're oh. not coming over, but uh, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll, we'll check in every day, oh. my brother and I. So it's, it's important. I think that's a, that's a real important message, you know, cause I think the cancer community as a whole, I think sometimes, you know, friends, family, they, they have this immediate response, like, what can you do to help? And, and usually it's like, bring food over, hang out. Um, and I think with the social distancing, I think we have to be very, very conscious of that, you know, to adhere to that. And I think what you said though, social distance doesn't mean ignore, right? Like that's something right, I think right. as a whole, as a society, and it'll be interesting maybe for another time for another podcast, like the, the ramifications of social distancing, you know, to the, to the far, far right or left where people don't even like call their mom and dad or they don't call their brother and right. sister or they're not calling people to like wish them happy birthday. I called my best friend this morning. It was his birthday, you know, but that's what we've been checking in via text and just seeing how yeah. like we can, you can still do those things. That's not changing. And I think that's really important, um, you know, for our audience at home. Yeah. It's funny. I, and I'm going to close on this, but in a, in a weird way, and of course this is an incredibly serious threat. It, it, you can see this, uh, bringing people together in, in sort of, um, novel and, and wonderful ways. I'm on a text thread uh, with friends from high school uh, who, frankly, I haven't talked to enough. And now I think we kind of realize that, hey, you know, we really need to lean on each other. And it's just been an absolutely wonderful dialogue. And again, to compare to 1918, think of all the technologies we have now um, where we can still, you know, stay in, in touch with one another uh, figuratively, uh, even while we're practicing social distancing. It really um, gives me a lot of hope that we can get through this pandemic. We will. We will. Well, Dr. Lewis, thank you for being on our podcast. Thank you for all you do for the pancreatic cancer community. We appreciate you taking time to share with our audience some of the things that we should be aware of about COVID-19. If you like what you hear today, please follow us, share this podcast, and thank you for listening. We'll be back in the podcast studio with more great episodes here from Project Purple. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. Mm -hmm.